0: We are in session 14, uh, which will focus on Leviticus chapter 25, and you can call the title of it, Israel in the Land. In this book on holiness, we're now going to focus on Israel in regards to real estate and its economy. Previously, we had focused a couple of sessions ago on the calendar, chapter 23, and now we find that the land itself is uniquely linked to the calendar. And uh, the word land is used 39 times in this and the next chapter. Uh, There are 39 books in the Old Testament. I don't know what you do with that piece of information, but if Israel was to possess and enjoy the land that's been promised them, they had to recognize certain fundamentals. First, that God owned the land. We'll, We'll find that emphasized in verse 2, 23, and 38. It does not belong to the UN. It does not belong to the PLO. It doesn't even belong to Israel. God has chosen, the creator of the universe has chosen to put his name on this piece of property. You can say, gee, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In a broad sense, that's certainly true. But in addition, God has chosen to put his name on this particular piece of real estate. Uh, Those that like to indulge in conjectures, when you study the area of the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis... We pretty much have reason to suspect that it is where the the cradle of uh, civilization, the Tigris-Euphrates River right there in Mesopotamia. But remember, the Garden of Eden was east of Eden. So that means whatever Eden was, was west of the Garden. Well, what's west of Mesopotamia? Israel. No big deal here. I wouldn't make doctrine out of it. In in my uh, uh, suspicions, I suspect there's a relationship between the Eden of before Genesis 3 and uh, the place that Israel presently occupies on the planet Earth. But in any case, be that as it may, God has chosen to put His name on this piece of property, and Israel is a tenant. God's name is on it, but He has given it to Israel under conditions of obedience. When they're obedient, they enjoy it. When they're not obedient, they don't enjoy it by various issues, either being in in, um, submission to some pagan group or uh, ultimately, in the diaspora, cast out of the land for a time. But always, even in those heavy passages that indict Israel for its disbelief or its failure to obey, there's always the glimmer of promise that they will ultimately be restored. I want to keep that in mind. But the main point is, is, as we watch the news every day um, with the UN this and the US that and the PLO that, anytime we're talking about the Middle East, we're poking our finger in the eye of God. It's His land, not ours. Not even theirs. And so, the second point that will come up uh, in this chapter is that God also owns the people of Israel. He purchased them when He redeemed them out of the Egyptian bondage. He speaks of that all the way through here. Uh, And because they all belong to Him, He expects them to treat each other as brothers and sisters. We'll see that in verses 25, 35, 38, elsewhere. They're not to take advantage of each other. They can take advantage of Gentiles from time to time. That's okay. We'll see. But not to each other. Especially in regards to um, personal debts and property issues. The other thing that will come up is that God gives the increase. We're going to see He forces them from time to time to be totally dependent on His increase. The sabbatical year. The jubilee year, we'll look into that. We'll discover that he deliberately puts them in a position of total dependence on him, where they can't even plow or seed. They can live off the land in raw, but not by cultivating. They were expected to toil in the fields. But, of course, God provides the sunshine, the rain, and brings the harvest. And so they were taught to trust in his word, obey his commandments, and trust in his promises. Boy, we need to learn those same things. By the way, had they obeyed his principles... Their economic system would have functioned smoothly. The land would have provided all that they needed. And everyone would have been cared for adequately. But they didn't obey the Lord. And so the rich got richer, the poor got poorer, and the land was ruined. Well, let's just jump into it. In the first uh, few verses, seven verses plus a few later, we'll be dealing with what is called the sabbatical year. Verse 1, and the Lord spake unto Moses in Mount Sinai. There again, you notice almost every one, every one of these chapters opens up. This book is general, with a couple of small exceptions, is not a narrative. It's a direct dialogue, or I should say even a monologue, from God to Moses. God is dictating this book to Moses. That's why so many scholars believe it's the most important book in the Bible. It's the only book on the, in the Bible that primarily focuses on God's holiness. We're not under the law, yes, but there's much to learn from the law. The Lord speaking unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, verse 2, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When ye come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. Boy, that must have been an exciting thing for Moses to hear. He doesn't say if, he says when. Can you picture Moses, all that he'd gone through? They failed to claim their inheritance at Kadesh Barnea. They're wandering in the wilderness. To get that reassurance, when God says to Moses, speaking on the children of Israel and saying to them, when ye come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath. Now that's a strange idea. We think of the Sabbath, six days, and the seventh is the Sabbath. That's the Sabbath for man. Six days you work, the seventh you rest was God's pattern. He set that pattern in Eden, not not at Mount Sinai, The Sabbath was not given at Mount Sinai. It was reminded, remember the Sabbath day in the Ten Commandments, but it it, it had been established long before. Much evidence of that. In Exodus 16, four chapters before the law was given, they're observing the Sabbath when the manna was being given. Sabbath was a pattern established with Adam and Eve, but it was reestablished, so to speak, as a special sign that Israel would keep it, knowing that no one else would. Now, it's interesting, we have already observed what scholars would call the heptatic structure. Heptatic, a fancy word for sevenfold. There are sevens everywhere in the scripture. Seven of this and seven of that, and you can make lists of them. i made lists, and there's over a hundred of them, explicit ones. Seven good years, seven bad years, seven of this, all the way through, just the, ex- the ex- explicit sevens. You'll also discover, as you study your Bible, there are implicit sevens. Certain lists are always seven meaning completeness. There are also hidden sevens that they're discovering with computers underneath the text, structural issues, numerical relationships among the letters and the words that are astonishing. Now, in that previous chapter, uh, chapter 23, actually, chapter before last, we studied the calendar, and obviously you're very sensitive to the fact that there's there are sevens all through the calendar. There are seven days to the week, but there's also seven weeks, counting the Omar or Omer and... and uh, to the Feast of Shavuot. There are seven months in the year from from Nisan to Tishri, or from Tishri to Nisan, either way you want to count it. There are not only seven days, weeks, and months, there are seven years that make up a sabbatical, uh, uh, a group of seven years. We'll discover that there are sevens all through the structure. The 70th week of Daniel is the 70th week of years, and uh, so on. Now we're also going to discover it goes up a level more that there are seven groups of seven years, 49 years, and then the 50th is especially called the Jubilee. We'll get into that shortly. And, of course, this sevens all hark back again to the creation when God rested in his labors, not because he was tired, it's because it was complete. And it's interesting, this concept of the word Sabbath implies a rest. We work six days, and the Sabbath is the day of rest. The land was to be cultivated for six years. The seventh year, it was to be given a rest. And that all has a spiritual meaning as is detailed in Hebrews chapter 4. You might turn to Hebrews 4, starting at verse 9, 9, 10, and 11. Where the writer of Hebrews is, is points out, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. It's talking about believers here. For he that is entered into his rest... He, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. The idea of resting here is to rely on God, not to connive and scheme and do of your own energy, but to rest in him, trust him. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall under the same example of unbelief. When you rely on your own judgment rather than God's, you are it's a form of unbelief. That's really what the writer is dealing with there. It doesn't mean rest like lay back and coast. He's saying you labor therefore to enter into that rest. What rest? The rest to rely on God. That's what the term means. That's what it's used. That's what the writer to Hebrews is speaking of here. But here now, in, in, in Leviticus 25, we have introduced this concept of a rest for the land. And we smile at this as we read this because most of us have enough agricultural background to know that it is healthy to give the land a rest. You can do that by not cultivating at all, or you can do it by rotating crops so there's different nutrient requirements. There's other ways that uh, agronomists have dealt with, but uh, clearly this is is this pretty advanced stuff here. Verse 3, God goes on and says, Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a... Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard. And that which groweth of its own accord of thy harvest, thou shalt not reap, neither gather the grapes of thy vine undressed, for it is a year of rest unto the land. And The Sabbath of the land shall be meat for you, and for thee, and for thy servant, and for thy maid, and for thy hired servant, and for thy stranger that sojourneth with thee. And for thy cattle and for the beasts that are in thy field shall the increase thereof be meat. But even the farm animals rested, you see. the Routine tasks to keep buildings from falling down or whatever were addressed, but the normal activities of an agricultural economy, plowing, sowing, and uh, harvesting, were prohibited. Now, Deuteronomy, we're reading Leviticus, but if you go into Deuteronomy, you'll find that uh, in Deuteronomy 15... You might follow me, turn to Deuteronomy 15, we'll take the first dozen verses or so. Deuteronomy 15, because it deals with some of these same issues. Deuteronomy 15, verse 1, At the end of every seven years thou shalt make a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor that lendeth ought unto his neighbor shall release it. He shall not exact it of his neighbor or of his brother, because it is called the Lord's release. Of a, of a foreigner thou mayest exact it again, but that which is thine with thy brother thine hand shall release, save when there shall be no poor among you, for the Lord shall greatly bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it. Only if thou carefully hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to, do, to observe to do all these commandments which I command you this day. For the Lord thy God blesseth thee as he promised thee, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, but thou shalt not borrow... And thou shalt reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over thee. If there be among you a poor man, of one of thy brethren, within any of thy gates, in thy land, in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thine heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother. But thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him, and thou shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. Beware that there be not a thought in thy wicked heart, saying, the seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, and thine eye be evil against thy poor brother, and thou givest him naught, And he cry unto the Lord against thee, and it be sin unto thee. Thou shalt surely give him, and thine heart shall not be grieved when thou givest unto him, because that for this thing the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thy works, and in all that thou puttest thine hand unto. For the poor shall never cease out of the land. Therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt... Open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, to thy needy in the land. If thy brother, a Hebrew man or an Hebrew woman, be sold unto thee and serve thee six years, then in the seventh year thou shalt let him go free from thee. And when thou sendest him out free from thee, thou shalt not... Let him go away empty. Thou shalt furnish him liberally out of thy flock, out of thy floor, and out of thy winepress. Of that wherewith the Lord thy God has blessed thee, thou shalt give unto him. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. And the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Therefore I command thee this thing this day. And so on. It goes on. I might mention the verses that follow also go on one step further and establish the procedure for voluntarily electing to stay with the house. If you were a, a Jewish uh, indentured servant. In other words, you, because you were broke, whatever, bankrupt, uh, you sold yourself into indentured servitude. You could serve no more than six years. because the sabbatical year, you went free. But there were some that after being with the house, serving the house for, say, six years, Sabbath year came, they were free to go. They chose not to. They loved what they were doing. They had a good job, steady provisions, a master they could relate to they could on that day elect on their choice to commit the rest of their life to that house. Not for another six years, for the rest of their life. And that was called a duelos, a bond slave. And if they chose to do that, and many did, they would uh, ceremonialize that commitment by taking that slave to the doorpost and they would take a, a, like a shoemaker's aw- an awl, like an ice pick, and pierce the ear to the doorpost implying that he is then tied to that house for the rest of his life. And what he would typically do is he'd wear a special earring, and to him, within the culture of the slave, it was a badge of honor. Others might be there serving because they had to. He was there because he chose to. And he was called a doulos. And it's interesting when you read the scripture, Paul and John and so forth, they speak of themselves as bond slaves of Jesus Christ. Not just slaves of Jesus Christ. You can't pick that up in just the translation unless you understand the background. The word in the Greek is the doulos, meaning the bond slave, if it's properly translated. What that means, what Paul is saying, he's he's making himself equivalent to having sold himself out 100 percent forever to his Lord. Okay. Now, because they pierced it with an all, that has special meaning for us here in Kurd Lane, because Kurd in French is heart of the all. It was given to the by the French Canadian trappers to the local Indians because they felt they were sharp traders. So it was a backhanded compliment. They called the French called them the Cordelains, meaning they had hearts of the all, meaning they were sharp traders. But for those of us with a biblical background, we know the word all appears only twice in Scripture. Each time with respect to this procedure of the bondslave. So for us, we can view that title of this place d'Alene, being the heart of the all, the heart of the bondslaves. And I hope that is our heart here. So, well, anyway, we move on. Um, one of the purposes of the sabbatical year of six years, you can use the land, the seventh year rest, is to deliver Israel from covetousness. From covetousness. If you think about the impact on an economy that caused them, uh, that plus some other things we're going to read about, kept them from uh, uh, trying to build up excessive assets to oppress the poor. And uh, it was the breaking of this regulation the sabbatical year, that caused Israel to go into the Babylonian captivity. If you've studied your Bible, you know that one of the major events in the history of Israel was when the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, of course, went from bad to worse and got destroyed. But the southern kingdom also went down. But because of God's commitment to the house of David and all the rest, he put him into captivity, but they were to return to the land, which they did. The first return was after Babylon. Isaiah says the second return is the big one, and that's the one where we've been watching the last uh, few decades. But the point is, is that Babylon kept it. Why do you suppose God had them go into Babylon for 70 years? J- Jeremiah predicted in, uh, in chapter 25 and 29 there would be 70 years. In fact, Daniel was reading Jeremiah as a, sli- as, a, as a captive in Babylon, and he knew it was going to be 70 years. And he, when he realized it was almost up, he went to prayer about it, just like we should. Is the Lord coming soon? Are you praying thy kingdom come? That's what it's asking for. Well, that's what Daniel did. He didn't say, oh boy, it's almost over. He went to prayer, prayed that it would be over because he knew that's what God, that was God's will. Well, the point is, why 70 years? It was 70 years, by the way, to the day. Scholars are astonished to discover it's to the day. Why 70 years? Well, it's interesting. In 2 Chronicles 36, verse 21, it says, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and ten years. Let me paraphrase that. God is saying to Israel, see, for 490 years, they did not keep the sabbatical years. God says, you owe me 70. So they, He put them in captivity. out He exiled them from the land for 70 years. They didn't keep the 70 years rest. They got The land God had 70 years rest by taking Israel and shipping them to battle 200 miles away for 70 years. To the day. When you discover these things are to the day, and that takes some homework, but when you do that, you know, it starts to impress upon you that God means what he says and says what he means. I don't don't think the word approximate is in God's vocabulary. I think when he says it, it it turns out to be precise. We found that, not in all of them, but in places where we've looked carefully, we find that it's exact. So it's very interesting. During the siege of Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, Zedekiah proclaimed a release for all the slaves, but then he reneged on it. That's in Jeremiah 34. It's incidental. Now, you say, gee, what's going on today? You know, it may surprise you that while they didn't keep it in the old days, they do today. That should shock you. Um, They do observe the sabbatical year, sort of. And I didn't bring it, but I have a newspaper clipping from many, many years ago. They, um, in Israel, have a problem because the Orthodox want to keep the Torah. And yet, how do you keep this country into fruits and vegetables? They're the number one supplier of fruits and vegetables to Europe. This little country, a third the size of San Bernardino County, is the number one exporter to Europe of fruits and so forth. How do they do that if every seventh year they got to leave the ground fallow? Well, I'll tell you what they do. Many of them do. They sell their land that year, before the Sabbath year starts, to an Arab under a contract which gives them the right to buy it back at the end of the year and leaves the guy a small profit for participating in this dodge. And they, <laughs> they actually do that. and It's very controversial because on the one hand, they're keeping the law technically. And yet on the other hand, it obviously violates the substance of what God had in mind. But you'll find if you, if you check the current events in Israel, that, uh, that's an issue that they argue about each year, but that some do, and, and whether it's igno- you know, there's, there's all kinds of debates about it. There is a basic principle we need to remember as we play these games, and that is that whatever we rob from God, uh, we'll never keep and enjoy for ourselves. And let me give you the authority on that. That's Malachi. It needs to be in your memory verses if you have Malachi 3, verses 8 through 10. Malachi, in chapter 3, verse 8 to 10, it says, Will a man rob God? Good question, huh? God says, Yet ye have robbed me. But you say, Wherein have we robbed thee? He says, In the tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, and ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. And that was one of Malachi's burdens. But then then God goes on, He says, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing so that there will not be room enough to receive it. Wow. You know, it's very interesting. Even Jesus emphasized, even in the famous temptation scene in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and so on, that you do not test God. You do not put God to the test. There's a lot of examples where you do not put God to the test. That's an instruction. That's a basic principle. There's one exception. There's one exception. That's here right here. It's really astonishing to realize that the creator of the universe put himself in a box. The creator of the universe announced a commitment here and dares you to take him up on it. God is daring you. He says, prove me now herewith. Strong language. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And from here you can go into all kinds of testimonials of famous people who discovered this and, and made their name around this, applying this principle. But there's one testimony that's better than all of those put together. That's your own. Try it. See what happens. See what it does. Malachi 3, 8 to 10. Let's move on. The next topic is another strange topic. It's also a topic that's very fascinating on the one hand and yet astonishing because they didn't keep it. They didn't keep this. It sounds very elegant when you read it, but when you go through the history books and try to find out evidence wherever they kept it, you can't find it. Starting in verse 8, And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years. We're not talking about seven years as a Sabbath. We're talking seven of those. You follow me? Seven times seven. Forty-nine, in other words. Thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee seven times seven years, and the space of seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years. Lord, put that in there for those that couldn't do the math. Okay i being flippant, I guess. Verse 9, then, then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. In the day of atonement shall ye make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. And incidentally, that's the uh, hayobel uh, shofar terura. It's to sound the trumpet. And the word for trumpet is the shofar. That is a word for the ram's horn, not the silver trumpets of the temple. These are the ram's horn, the military call. And uh, I brought back a few from Israel for his gifts, and I, I was tempted to have one here to show you. I figure you all know what a, what the ram's horn looks like. I didn't want to bring it because then you'd ask me to blow it. It takes real skill to do that right. So, so, uh, And I won't impose on Mark uh, to demonstrate it here. I spared him that this evening, but we'll move on. the The shofar. See, every new year started on the first of Tishri, which is started with the blowing of the trumpets. And the first of Tishri, the month of Tishri, which is the, uh, the seventh month on the religious calendar, but it's the first month of the civil calendar, it's in the fall, the first day of the new year is called Rosh Hashanah, which is the head of the new year. That's the civil label. It also happens that same day in the religious side is the Feast of Trumpets. The rabbis later added two days on that. So the Feast of Trumpets, they would record as as a two-day thing. But the point is, they're both on the same day, but they're different things. Rosh Hashanah is the civil New Year. It's like our New Year, so to speak. But the uh, uh, Feast of Trumpets was a religious celebration and uh, the Feast of Teruah. Now, 10 days later, on the 10th of Tishri, is the famous celebration or day, I should say, of remembrance, called Yom Kippur, which is the uh, uh, Day of Atonement. It is the most solemn day in the Jewish calendar. We talked about all that a couple of sessions ago. But you know what's rather strange about the Jubilee year? You would think that, okay, you got the Sabbath years, and then you got seven of those, and you got the next year's a Jubilee year. You would think that it would start on the first of the year. We've had 49 years go by, so the following year is going to be a Jubilee year. You'd think it would trigger on New Year's Day. It doesn't. It starts on the 10th. That's kind of weird. That's, that's sort of like saying, gee, we're going to celebrate the century or the millennium not on January 1st, but on January 10th, so to speak, in our civil sense here. Yeah. So it, it starts on Yom Kippur. You think, well, why the 10th? Why doesn't it start in Rosh Hashanah? And it's significant, I think, that the year of Jubilee began on the day of repentance with the cleansing and forgiveness first. Before we enjoy this Jubilee year, and you'll get into that in a minute, they had to go through the Yom Kippur. They had to be cleansed and forgiven and repented, and I mean repented, cleansed and forgiven, I should put it in the right order. So verse we get to verse 10, God says, and ye shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty unto all the land, unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you, and ye shall return every man unto his possession, and ye shall return every man unto his family. Talk about that because it's very, very important to understand this for lots of reasons. But by the way, this phrase, to proclaim liberty throughout all the land and to all the inhabitants thereof, do you know where that's inscribed? You got it. The Liberty Bell in Independence Hall in Philadelphia. The famous Liberty Bell that we all celebrate in our heritage of this country has that engraved on it. To proclaim liberty throughout all the land and to all the It comes right out of the, uh, the Bible. At the, at the start of the Jubilee, the people were commanded to release their indentured servants. You had purchased. Or you somehow got these indentured servants. That's fine, but at jubilee year they go free, if they're unless they're gentiles. That's a whole other issue. The idea of the jubilee years: they all could go back to their families, they could go back to their lands. If you sold your family property, you got it back. We got it back. See, I should explain. We'll let's see. We'll get we'll get into this uh, land thing in a minute. But but uh, the point is, all people were freed. Go home. All debts were forgiven. All land returned to its original owners. Sounds bizarre, doesn't it? Strange for, to our ears. I'll explain why in a minute. See, a Hebrew servant was to serve a maximum of six years and then be free. We, in Exodus 21, verse 2, that's established. All property was to uh, refer to its original owner. We'll get to that in verse 13 here in a minute. Verse 11, the jubilee shall that 50th year be to you. Ye shall not sow, neither reap that which groweth itself in it, nor gather the grapes of it of thy vine undressed. So see, just as the... Now, what's interesting here, this is the Jubilee year. The seventh year was a sabbatical year, and that was true, the, the not being able to, you know, the, the land had to lay fallow was the seventh year. If that seventh year was the 49th, then the next year was a Jubilee year, so now we have two years that the land had to lay fallow. And by the time you get to the third year, you've got to plant, and you've got to wait for most of that year to go by before you can reap. So you're without cultivated food for almost three years. Strange stuff. Why is God doing that? To teach them to trust Him. He would take care of them. And uh, they had to rely on the Lord and that He would keep His promises. You know, it's interesting. Everybody talks about Allah because of Islam. The Allah of Islam is presented aggressively in the Quran as unknowable, capricious. He can do anything He wants. That's the opposite of the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament delights in being known. The God of the Old Testament delights in making and keeping promises. He's predictable. He's Read that, reliable, trustworthy. He's the opposite of the Allah presented by the Quran. But let's move on. So they, uh, they had to trust him to supply sufficient food for almost three years. Because they couldn't work the land in the 49th year, it was the sabbatical year. They couldn't work the land in the 50th year because it's a jubilee year. In the 51st year, they had to plow and plant and so, you know, all that uh, until it could get a harvest. Verse 12, for it is a jubilee, it shall be holy unto you, ye shall eat the increase thereof out of the field. So the people, including the poor and the foreigners, could gather from the fields and be God's guests, if you will. Live on the wild, so to speak. Now we get into another concept here that I want you to tune your ears to, and that's what I'm going to call the restitution of all things. Let's start in verse 13. In the year of this jubilee ye shall return every man unto his possession. If thou sell unto thy neighbor, or buyest out of thy neighbor's hand, ye shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after the jubilee, thou shalt buy of thy neighbor, and according to the number of years of the fruits, he shall sell unto thee. According to the multitude of the years, thou shalt increase the price thereof, and according to the fewness of the years, thou shalt diminish the price of it. According to the number of the years of the fruits, doth he sell unto thee. Now let's back up. and See, in Israel, they did not sell property the way we're used to. The way we buy and sell property in this country is what an attorney call, calls in fee simple. To succeed to all your heirs and signs. In other words, when you buy a piece of land, the concept is you buy it forever, and it goes on to your, you own it, long run, forever. Your heirs, the signs, whatever. In Israel, only the use of the land was sold, because they didn't own it. God owned it, see? And uh, they entered into what you and I would classify as a lease, not a sale and fee simple. So the land belonged to the Lord, and Israel itself was only a tenant under conditions of obedience. And the Lord wanted his land to remain with the tribes and families to which it had been allotted. There still was a form of private ownership because you owned, you were owned and you were responsible, uh, and that gave stability to the economy. But, um, you had a sense of proprietorship and caring for the property. And by the, and people take, usually take care of things that they own. If you want to experience this, all you need to do is visit a socialistic or communist country. You go to Russia, for example, you have these beautiful buildings, but the maintenance is terrible, dilapidated, falling apart. Nobody cares. You go through the whole place; nobody because nobody owns anything. It's all the state, and who cares? You know, see the, They say, you know, the, we pretend to work, and they pretend to pay us. They, you quickly recognize the penalties of ambiguities and the lack of accountability uh, in public ownership, and we even see that in this country, not to that extreme. But uh, you can tell when there's something that's a government-run place. It varies a lot by the kind of administration, and yet uh, it isn't the same as a corporation where the employees have built it of their sweat labor and care about it and so forth. Where people care because they own it. They own a piece of it. So anyway, these laws in Israel made it impossible for wealthy real estate speculators to accumulate vast holdings and distort the economy. And even the poorest Israelite family received its land back and by working the land, they could provide for their needs and perhaps even the needs of some others. Now, there's a parallel here that many commentators make, and I wouldn't disparage it, but I think it goes beyond what we're going to talk about. Let me give this one parallel, and that's this: the year of the gospel. See, the, the Greek word for uh, trumpet is korux, The verb is karusa, which means to proclaim or herald. That's the emphasis of it. And there are many commentators that suggest that this is all suggestive, if you will, of proclaiming spiritual liberty available through the gospel. Remember what Jesus said: "You know, now you're free through the word which I've given you, and so forth." You may also recall when Jesus announced his mandate for his ministry. He's at the synagogue of Nazareth, and uh, when he went to the synagogue there, they gave he asked for the scroll of Isaiah, and he read. This is in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. But he reads uh, there; it quotes it. But he's reading from Isaiah 61, what we would call Isaiah 61. Jesus read, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Period. He sat down. And many people recognize the parallel of the proclaiming of the jubilee and the proclaiming of the gospel, the setting of captives at liberty and, and so forth. Well, Jesus read that and then he sat down and he says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And, uh, and to preach the gospel is to proclaim it in, in the same word. And uh, and of course, it's indeed uh, a liberating gospel as we uh, discover the marvelous events of his ministry in the four different gospel accounts. But when you examine The passage in Isaiah that he was reading, compare the Luke passage, Luke uh, chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, with Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. You recognize he's reading from that, but he does something very strange. He stops at a comma and closes the book. The part that he doesn't read is, and the day of vengeance of our God and what follows. And many people recognize that that comma has lasted 2,000 years, because all what follows happens in a second coming i sometimes put my tongue in my cheek and say that proves that jesus was a dispensationalist meaning that there are intervals in history that are in which god deals in very specific ways see what follows after the day of vengeance of our god of course is that he would release his people and restore them to the land and bless them abundantly and it goes on so clearly i believe the jubilee thing prophetically Yes, it may fit the gospel period in a past sense, but more relevantly, I believe it refers the jubilee year, points to his second coming and what follows, and uh, his coming in power and glory and so forth. For your reading assignment, your supplemental reading, I encourage you to jot these down. Read Isaiah chapter 11. Read Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 40. That's Isaiah 11, 35, and 40. Read Jeremiah 23. Read Micah 4 and Revelation 20. I'm going to suggest Isaiah 11, 35 and 40, Jeremiah 23, Micah 4 and Revelation 20. I want to suggest to you those prophetic passages, I believe, color the prophetic implications of the the Jubilee and the acceptable year of the Lord. So I think the acceptable year of the Lord is uh, of God's grace is separated from the future day of judgment by a comma that's lasted 2,000 years. God's day of salvation, as Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians two, has lasted as long as it has because God is long-suffering and wants sinners to come to repentance. 2 Peter three 9 and 15 emphasize that. Let's go on with Leviticus 25. Verse 17, God continues, Ye shall not therefore oppress one another, but thou shalt fear thy God, for I am the Lord your God. See, the Jubilee year has given a fresh new beginning for the released slaves and for the landowners, and, and, and thus it keeps poverty and inequality to a minimum. It's interesting that in our, in our own culture, our own bankruptcy laws are motivated by much the same thing, to provide a procedure in extremists where you can erase the blackboard and start over, not have these things hang over a whole new, another life. The whole philosophy behind the bankruptcy laws are very similar to what was being accomplished here in Israel by these laws. In my own case, as many of you know, I, I uh, <laughs> went down in flames many years ago. I signed an $8 billion joint venture with the old Soviet Union, and, and when that started to get into trouble, I was, that, that was fine, but I was foolish enough to try to save this public company with my own, on my own efforts, and I got what I did. I was arrogant, I got what I deserved, I went down in flames. The company went out, not only went in bankruptcy, I did too. And as I was in that valley, I discovered the IRS thought I owed them $2.5 million. And uh, interestingly enough, it took seven years to get that resolved with them. And I remember, it was not not because of the Bible, but I remember at the time thinking that was very, very significant duration, because it took seven years when they finally acknowledged that they, they were willing to compromise that and, and something that I could handle, which we did. Uh, so having been through that, uh, that was sort of my jubilee year, if you will. Uh, we'll move on. Verse 18, wherefore ye do my statutes and keep my judgments and do them and ye shall dwell in the land in safety. Now, it's interesting that every sabbatical year at the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was every seven years, you get to the, the Rosh Hashanah and then Yom Kippur and then five days later you get the Feast of Tabernacles. At the Feast of Tabernacles, the book of Deuteronomy was to be read publicly to all the people, the entire nation, had the book of Deuteronomy read to them by the priests. And that's ordained in Deuteronomy 31, verses 9 through 13. That way the nation would really learn what it means when we say, give us this day our daily bread. To recognize not only God's provision materially, but also to recognize God's provision spiritually. And God promised them to protect them and to provide for them if they would but trust and obey Him. And that's what we're going to get uh, dealing with here. And as we noticed in our study of the book of Judges, this dismal period of Israel's history, called the book of Judges, if they had observed this very rule, their entire history of servitudes uh, to their enemies would have been averted. They got what they deserved because they didn't keep the law. They weren't even aware of the law. The priests didn't read it every year, etc., And if they followed the specific instructions of Deuteronomy 7 and wiped out their enemies, they wouldn't have the the problems they subsequently endured. In fact, it's interesting that the headquarters of their enemies was Jericho and uh, Hebron and Gaza and the Golan Heights. And we read all about that in the book of Judges. And where are they today? The enemies of God are in the same pockets that they failed to deal with back there. Uh, Joshua started it, but they didn't complete the job, and that's what the book of Judges is bearing the brunt of. And they're bearing the brunt of that to this very day. And if you want an indication that there's a supernatural aspect to geography and its history, there it is. It's history dependent. Let's move on. Verse 19, And the land shall yield her fruit, and ye shall eat your fill and dwell there in safety. That's if you're obeying. But if ye shall say, what shall we eat the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow nor gather in our increase. Then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years. And you ye shall sow in the eighth year, and eat yet of old fruit until the ninth year, until her fruits come in, ye shall eat of the old store. Now we get into another aspect of this, which we'll call the law of Redemption. And here we're going to see emergent the role of what in Hebrew is called the goel. We would use the term kinsman redeemer. Verse 23. The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine, and ye are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession ye shall grant a redemption for the land. If thy brother be waxen poor, and hath sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. And if the man have none to redeem it, and he himself be able to redeem it, uh, then let him count the years of the sale thereof and restore the overplus to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return unto his possession. But if he be not able to restore it to him, then that which is sold shall remain in the hand of him that hath brought it until the year of Jubilee." And the jubilee, it shall go out, and he shall return unto his possession. So this is this aspect of redemption. Understand again, we're not talking about fee simple. We're talking about really a lease. If a guy's in trouble and he sells his family property, he really sells the use of it for some period of time. If in the meantime, he somehow prospers, he has the right to go and redeem it. He can pay the guy for the unused years left. And get the land back. That's the idea, because God wants it ultimately to stay within the family. Now, if he is destitute and can't do that, but he's got a kinsman that can do it for him, that's okay too. But by the, so this introduces the concept of a kinsman redeemer, and the kinsman redeemer involves four conditions. The person that would be the goel would have to be first of all, it has to be a kinsman, it has to be a kinsman. Secondly. He obviously has to be able to redeem. He has to have the resources or whatever to be able to perform. The third thing he has to be is willing. He wasn't obligated to. He was able to, if he was a kinsman and was able and willing, he could perform it if he undertook all the obligations of the beneficiary. Now, we see that profiled for us in very colorful terms in this little four-chapter book called the Book of Ruth. Because in the book of Ruth, as you all may know, uh, Naomi was a Bethlehemite, and she and her husband went to, and their two sons went to Moab, where it was, things were better. And while they were sojourning in Moab over a decade, uh, the husband died, and the two sons died. In the meantime, they had two two wives, two Moabite women, but they insist to go back with Naomi. You know, meanwhile, Naomi finds out things by now are better in Bethlehem, so she's going to go back home to her own people. Ten is yes, ten years later, and the two daughters, daughter in laws. Want to stay with Naomi? That tells you a lot about Naomi. She was quite a girl. She talks him out of it. Get serious, girls. There are no more, no more sons in my womb. I'm, and if there were, you're not going to wait around for them. i You know, she, she argues in a very Jewish way. And uh, finally, the one does yield and stays with her own people. But Ruth insists on staying with Naomi. Where you go, I will go. Where your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. That famous, famous commitment. And they go back to Bethlehem. While in Bethlehem, Ruth is entitled under the laws. Uh, of, of the Torah, to glean after the reapers. If you owned land, you could only go through once and only once. And what was left, what you missed, what you couldn't get, or what happened to fall, belonged to the destitute, the widows and orphans, what have you. And Ruth was in that category for her mother-in-law, so she was gathering. Boaz, this wealthy landowner, catches her eye. He puts her under his protection, and uh, he even tells him to drop hems full on purpose. So he, he's something going on here. Okay. So when Ruth gets back to Naomi with all this extra abundance, for Naomi to know something's up, and she figures out that Boaz is a kinsman. And so Boaz is in a position to restore to Naomi her original lands that were sold 10 years earlier, which he, before the story is over, he does. But there's another issue, and that's what's called the Leverite marriage. He also is entitled, if he wants to, to marry Ruth, to raise up seed for, the, for her dead husband, so to speak. And so uh, Naomi coaches uh, Ruth how to handle the situation, and of course she puts the, the question to Boaz if he'll be the kinsman redeemer and of course he wants to but there's a guy ahead of him in the lineup so he has to deal with that which he does uh, at the, the climax of the book of course is the big great love story where Boaz redeems the land for Naomi and takes a Gentile bride and of course you begin to realize quite a way the modeling here Boaz is in the role of the kinsman redeemer who's our kinsman redeemer? Jesus Christ through his act of redemption Israel Naomi returned to the land and he takes a Gentile bride it's an incredible study. If you haven't gone through the book of Ruth, it's an important book of prophecy. If for no other reason, you will not understand what's going on in Revelation 5 unless you understand the book of Ruth. Now, we're talking, now understand what the kinsman redeemer had to do. He had to be a kinsman. That's why Jesus had to be a kinsman of Adam. Adam blew it. It's his kinsman, the second Adam, the last Adam, as Paul calls him, that is uh, the kinsman redeemer. He has to be able to redeem, and indeed he was, because he was perfect. He had no debts of his own. He could take all of our debts. He had to be willing. It was his love that put him on that cross and kept him there for for on our behalf. He also had to assume all our obligations. The previous guy that in Boaz's thing, the the other guy that he was willing to buy the property, but he couldn't marry Ruth, so he 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 blew it. He couldn't. He can't do part. You have to do one or, you're either going to do it all or none. That's of course Jesus did all all of it for on our behalf. There is a very strange event that occurs in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet. He knows that the Babylonian captivity is coming. And God tells him to go and buy a certain piece of ground, which he does because God told him he does it. And you wonder, well, that's a little bizarre because Jeremiah knows the captivity is not over. He's not going to survive all this. Why is he buying this piece of ground? The answer, of course, is that his heirs, a generation or two later, will come and claim the land he bought for him. And what did they do? The way they did that was that the title deed that Jeremiah paid for by buying this land was sealed and the details of redemption are written on the outside. When a scroll was written within and on the backside, it was generally a title deed. The backside held the conditions by which it could be opened. And that's it. It never talks about when it finally does get redeemed, but you, but you have to infer what obviously happens later. Eventually, this thing is stashed in some jar somewhere will be picked up by his heirs, and they'll lay claim to the land after the Babylonian captivity after they come back and all that. Well, that's all a pre-model, of course, of Revelation chapter five, where we see John in heaven, and the seven sealed book is given. is is called Who Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And John understood what's going on. You and I miss it, but he understands. He sobbed convulsively because no man was found. It had to be a man. No man was found worthy to open the book and open the seals thereof. Someone says, don't weep. Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed to open the book and loose the seals thereof. And John says, he looked, I saw the lamb as it had been slain. And, and we find then, of course, that's chapter 5, chapter 6. He's opening the seven seals. He is taking, it's a title deed to the earth, And as he opens those seals, he's taking possession of that which he purchased. It's an escrow closing. And it was purchased on the cross. It's taken possession of in Revelation uh, 6. But you don't really appreciate all that unless you've been through the book of Ruth. You understand the way God has set up the dynamics here. Okay, let's go to verse 29. We can still make this, I think. The Walled village is an exception here. And if a man sell a dwelling house... In a walled city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it is sold. Within a full year, may he redeem it. See, a house within a walled village was much more valuable than a house out in the open field, uh, because obviously it afforded protection from invaders. And so, the former owner, in this case, if he had, to, he, had to, he sells the lease of it. He has only one year within which to redeem it, because whoever bought it doesn't want to be just out of you know within one year. Fine, but other than that, it's his, and that, that's a, that was an exception. And if it not be verse thirty, if it not be redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house that is in the wall city shall be established forever to him that bought it throughout his generations. It shall not go out in the jubilee. But the houses of the villages which have no walls around them shall be counted as the fields of the country, and they that they may be redeemed, and they shall go out in the jubilee. Nothing, notwithstanding, the cities of the Levites and the houses of the cities of their possession may the Levites redeem at any time. And it goes the other way around now. See, the Levites had no tribal allotments; they weren't given. Um, the allotments under Joshua. Because the Lord was their inheritance, was the concept. You find that in Joshua 13 and 14 and 18 and so forth. But they were given 48 cities. And also the pasture lands adjacent to those cities. Th- those were the Levitical cities. Their situation is a little different. They could buy and redeem uh, uh, whenever. And uh, there would seem to be an exception. When you read the book of Acts, uh, you'll discover at the end of chapter 4, But the property there is in Cyrus, not in Israel. And uh, so I'll let that go. But anyway, if a man purchase of the Levites, then the house that was sold and the city of his possession shall go out in the year of the Jubilee, for the houses of the Levites, of the cities of the Levites, are their possession among the children of Israel. But the field of the suburbs of their cities may not be sold, for it is their perpetual possession. Well, now we're going to shift a little bit to the bankrupt brother. Verse 35. And if thy brother be waxen poor... And fallen in decay with thee, and thou shalt then thou shalt re- relieve him, yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee. Take thou no usury of him or increase, but fear thy God that thy brother may live with thee. Interest-free loans are in view here. Uh, the NIV says excessive interest, but and, and probably from Nehemiah five where that's implied perhaps, but uh, they were, however, allowed to charge interest to Gentiles. That's in Deuteronomy 23, verses 19 and 20. But uh, here we have, the idea is within the family, within the, from brother to brother, they were supposed to lend interest-free. And some scholars feel they did have a modest interest. The idea was not excessive interest. Today we use the word usury to mean excessive interest. Be that as it may, there's lots of debate about that among scholars. We'll just move on. Verse 37, thou shalt not give him thy money upon usury, nor lend him thy victuals for increase. I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Or as Matthew 10 would put it, freely every seed, freely give. And the early church was quick to adopt these principles, helping widows and other needy believers. You'll find that in Acts 2 and 4 and 5 and 6 and so on. So there's ample emphasis on that in the book of Acts among the early church. Next we get into the indentured brother. Verse 39, if thy brother that dwelleth by thee be waxen poor and be sold unto thee, thou shalt not compel him to serve as a bondservant. But, as a hired servant and as a sojourner, he shall be with thee, and thou shalt and shall serve thee unto the year of the jubilee. never more than six years. Uh, in one on the one hand, uh, because of exodus twenty one two, he went free on the Sabbath year, right? verse forty one, And then shall he depart from thee both he and his children with him, and shall return unto his own family, unto the possession of his father shall he return, for they are my servants, which I brought forth out of the land of Egypt, they shall not be sold as bondmen. Thou shalt not rule over him with rigor, but thou shalt fear thy God. Both thy bondmen and thy bondmaids, which thou shalt have, shall be of the heathen that are round about you. Of them shall ye buy bondmen and bondmaids. Moreover, the children of the strangers that do sojourn among you, of them shall ye buy, and of their families that are with you, which they begot in your land, and they shall be your possession. And ye shall take them as an inheritance for your children after you, To inherit them for a possession, they shall be your bondmen forever. But over your brethren, the children of Israel, ye shall not rule one over another with rigor. So the Jews were allowed to own uh, slaves from Gentile nations around them, or aliens living in the land. But a Jew could never enslave another Jew. Slaves were considered the property of their owner, and could be part of a family inheritance. Gentile slaves had no uh, uh, hope of ever being set free unless they could secure the purchase price or the master chose to let them. Now it's interesting, during the Civil War era in our own country here, uh, Americans used to use passages like these to prove that it was biblical and right for people to own and sell slaves. But it must be noted that God's laws did not establish slavery. They regulated it made it a little more humane. And it was in God's principles in the New Testament that ultimately, from the grassroots up, caused much of that to obviously disappear. Had the Jews treated one another as the law required, they would have been a testimony to the Gentile nations. But instead, Israel failed to obey and eventually became slaves themselves. And that's what the book of Judges is all about. During the Roman Empire, by the way, during the New Testament period, they estimate there were about 60 million slaves. The message of Jesus and Paul were to individuals, and it was ultimately through that influence that the institution of slavery would eventually be abolished. Now we have the case where the Jew is enslaved by a Gentile. Verse 47, If a sojourner or stranger wax rich by thee, and thy brother that dwelleth by him wax poor, and sell himself unto the stranger or sojourner by thee, or to the stock of a stranger's family, after that he is sold, he may be redeemed again, one of his brethren may redeem him. Either his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or any that is nigh of kin unto him of his family may redeem him, or if he be able, he may redeem himself. And he shall reckon with him that bought him from the year that he was sold unto him unto the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall be according to the number of years, according to the time of the hired servant uh, shall it be with him. It's interesting that the a Gentile resident stranger in the land of Israel still had to obey the law of Moses, even though he wasn't a member of the covenant community. And the Gentile was required to treat him as a hired servant and not treat him harshly. If not uh, redeemed, he and his family would be released at the Jubilee year. It was unfortunate that Israel did not obey the laws in this chapter because their selfishness and greed, of course, brought ruin to the land and their entire economic system. The prophets rebuked the rich for exploiting the poor and stealing their lands, and their houses, even their children. That's in Isaiah 3 and all of Isaiah 5, Isaiah 10, Amos 2, 5, and so on. A very repetitive theme in most of the prophets. So what do we learn from this? One thing, God is concerned on how we use the resources He's given us. And He's concerned about how we treat one another in the marketplace as well as other places. And He eventually judges those that exploit others and uh, treat them in ways that are less than humane. And that's what Amos one and chapters 1 and 2 uh, deal with aggressively. Well, uh, we've sort of gone through the chapter. Let's touch on a few other things uh, that are kind of, I think, uh, uh, unusually provocative. And I'll call this uh, area the eschatological conjectures here, especially about the jubilee year. The jubilee year was a year that all the debts were forgiven, all the slaves went free, and the land returned to its proper owners. It was a time of the restitution of all things. Peter... In his second sermon in Acts, we all, when we read the book of Acts, we're all familiar with his first sermon, the day of Pentecost, when he talks, you are not, we are not drunk as you suppose, so we all remember that sermon. His second sermon. In fact, by the way, just speaking of Peter's sermons, if you remember as you read the Gospels, Peter had a unique gift of foot and mouth disease. I mean, he always said the wrong thing at the wrong time. I mean, he was, you know, we, we smile at his repeated mongling in general. Through the gospels. This is this is this unlettered, impulsive fisherman. Notice what happens after Acts from Acts 2 and on. This same guy, look at his sermons, his first sermon in Acts 2. Read how it's structured, how eloquent, how well organized, how focused it is. Read Acts 3. His sermon in Acts 3, his second sermon in Acts 3. It's eloquent. We're so used to Paul, we take Peter for granted. No, this is this unlettered fisherman assisted by the Holy Spirit. If you want to see evidence of what happens with the Holy Spirit infilling, compare Peter before Acts 2 and compare Peter after Acts 2, and it's like a laboratory experiment. It's interesting. But anyway, in his second sermon in Acts chapter 3, Peter speaks of the ultimate time of refreshing, And he speaks of the time of restitution of all things, but he's talking about the second coming of Christ. In Acts chapter 3, starting at verse 19, Peter says, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. This Peter. But he's using this expression, the time of restitution of all things with the second coming. And many prophecy scholars have sensed that the jubilee year is somehow eschatological. Everything else in God's calendar, all the feasts we went through in in chapter 23, they all have historical roots, yes, but they also have prophetic implications. Every one of them. And I think the jubilee year is no different. That somehow, I think it speaks of the millennium, second coming and all of that. When all debts are forgiven. All the slaves are free. And the land returns to its rightful owner, back to Israel, so to speak. There will come a day, the scripture tells us, that the curse upon the ground, we're talking about the land here, the curse on the ground will be itself lifted from the creation. Romans 8, verse 20, 21, 22 deals with that. Isaiah 35 deals with that. The ultimate, ultimate restitution of all things. Now there's many that recognize this kind of thing, and there's, so many try to predict, gee, when is the Jubilee year coming? Because every one of these other feasts are, that are prophetic get fulfilled on the day they're observed. Our Passover was given you know, was, was crucified on the 14th of Nisan. The Feast of firstfruits was three days later, that Sunday morning, and so on. The Feast of Pentecost was on the Feast of Pentecost. Well, when's the jubilee year? And you'll find all kinds of people with pamphlets and charts and and so forth. And uh, they try to predict when the Jubilee is supposed to happen. The problem is there are so many rabbinical debates about all the details, the answer is nobody knows. A lot of people think they know. Uh, Some of the rabbis argue that the sabbatical cycle of seven years uh, begins after the Jubilee year. In other words, you've got seven years, 49th year, the next year is the Jubilee year. And they like to count... The next cycle of seven as the starting the year following. And there there are those that adhere to that view, which complicates an already complicated situation. I happen to lean the other way, and those are rabbis that argue that you have a grid of seven years. When you got seven of those, 49, the 50th year is the Jubilee year, but it's also the first year of the next cycle of seven. That keeps the whole thing on a on a grid of seven, 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 seven seven, all the way through. And that, you know, instinctively from all the rest is the way I think God would deal with this. Uh, the other problem is they can't find any evidence when it was really observed. There's a fragment here and there, uh, and there's certain arguments that may uh, have more weight than I'm allowing here in this discussion. But uh, uh, they were supposed to begin with the conquest of Joshua. They may have, but there's no record that they ever kept the jubilee. That's the part of the problem. That's part of their, that's why they went into captivity. They didn't keep it. So a lot of these little charts that get circulated presume also that this cycle begins again when the state of Israel was established, on May 14th to 48. There's no evidence of that, nothing to do with that, one, that's one way or the other, I don't think. That's a civil thing, it's a different thing. And so uh, no biblical basis for this reckoning. Now, having said all that, we do suspect that we're approaching closely the 70th Jubilee since Joshua's conquest of Canaan. But again, the lack of precision should constrain any conjectures here. Uh, E.W. Bullinger reckons the nativity at 2 B.C. and and as occurring at the 29th Jubilee, for his reasons. And he generally is a pretty precise kind of scholar. But that would make the 70th Jubilee, 41 Jubilees later, which would be 2,009 years from that one. And if he's correct with his date of the Lord being born at 2 B.C. That would make it on our, you know, it, that would make us on our calendar the year 2007. I thought I'd throw that out just to make this study a little interesting. I can assure you, it's probably as wrong as all the other conjectures are too, because there's a lack of precision both in the mechanics of it as well as the calibration date. So, but I think I do. I have no hesitancy to suggest that the Jubilee year probably is prophetic of the millennium, second coming of Christ, which. And so we're getting uh, close to the time of restitution of all things. When all debts are forgiven, yours and mine, all slaves go free, and the land returns to its rightful owners. Praise God. So for next time, uh, you got a bit of an assignment. Um, I'd like you to go ahead and read the rest, chapters 26 and 27, the rest of Leviticus, as we get ready for the wrap-up of this single book in the Bible on holiness. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we we do thank You. We do thank You that Your grace and long-suffering has reached so far as to include us in Your kingdom. We thank You, Father, for our salvation. We thank You for our redemption. We thank You, Father, above all things, for Jesus Christ, our kinsman Redeemer who has taken all our debts and has delivered us from our slavery and who has assured us a presence with you throughout eternity. We thank you, Father, for these incredible blessings that you've showered upon us. We thank you, Father, for your word and we thank you for this book to illuminate your holiness and to give us an understanding of our unholiness. Oh, Father, we do come before your throne acknowledging our sins, repenting of our lives and the innumerable ways we find to grieve you. We confess it, Father, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We claim that, Father, that we might indeed be cleansed vessels, that we might indeed be effective stewards, that we might be pleasing in your sight as to how we exercise stewardship of the resources you've given us and as we shepherd our relationships with our brothers in the body. We do pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you would make us ever more pleasing in your sight, Father, not by power nor by might, but by your Spirit as we commit ourselves into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our kinsman redeemer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you.